When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our College Contender Series speaking with the head coaches of our top 10 men's and women's teams entering the 2022 college tennis season. On today's episode in particular, you're going to hear my conversation with Stanford men's tennis head coach Paul Goldstein. On today's episode, Coach Goldstein reflects on what was certainly a fascinating 2021 season for Stanford. He discusses the strengths of his team's roster entering the new year, offers his thoughts, some of the biggest discussions happening in college tennis right now, and so much more. It is a fantastic episode that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, if you'd like to learn more about this Stanford team, you can head on over to our website, crackrackets.com, where Matt Stachowiak has written about the Cardinal. Of course, on our Great Shot podcast feed, Matt joins Chris Halioris and myself to offer our thoughts on preseason number seven Stanford. You can go watch more about them as well on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as we try to cover this Stanford team from each and every angle entering the season. Of course, if you've missed any of our other College Contender episodes, you can catch up on them all on our website, CrackRackets.com. We've talked about our preseason number 10, 9, 8, and 7 teams thus far. Six more to go as we try to ensure that you listeners have all of the information you need to be thoroughly prepared for the 2022 college tennis season. But with that in mind, enough with the plugs. Let's get to today's conversations. Westoff, hit those credits. Let's get to my talk with Stanford men's tennis head coach, Paul Goldstein. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. Of course, you may know him best as a multi-time Kalamazoo champion, former All-American player at Stanford, top 100 singles and doubles professional. Of course, now we know him as the head coach of the Stanford men's tennis team. Welcome back to the show, Coach Paul Goldstein. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Alex. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for everything you do for college tennis. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you on the show, and obviously, I want to talk about your team. I want to talk about looking forward towards 2022, but first things first, I have to ask, because you are someone who has experienced success at every level of tennis, juniors, college, professional. I'm curious what it was about college tennis that drew you back to Stanford as the head coach. Uh, Well... In all my experiences of playing tennis, 
uh, starting at the time I was 10 and I was fortunate, you know, through my time on playing professionally to, to compete at some, you know, some of the finest venues in the world and playing some of the biggest tournaments in the world. Um, but my fondest memories on a tennis court were, were playing college tennis uh, with my teammates, uh, my friends, uh, get this, that sense of showing up on campus in, the, in, in September at the beginning of the year and establishing some common goals with one another uh, and working together throughout the course of the year, uh, even in your finest years, having ups and downs throughout the course of that year and facing adversity. Um, and then we were really fortunate during my time in college as a player uh, to, to experience some success. And so at the end of the year to uh, accomplish the goal that you set out at the beginning of the year was just extraordinary. And doing that with the, the guys who became your best friends, who were your best friends throughout the course of the year and doing that together was just sort of a seminal experience in my life. And so when the opportunity arose eight years ago now, almost to sort of return uh, to the place that, you know, was really special to me and, and uh, be a caretaker for the program. It was, it felt kind of uh, once in a lifetime, it was either going to happen then or never at all. And so it's, uh, I, I feel fortunate. Yeah, I know. It's great to have had you back. And with all of that said, you talk about that adversity and teammates dealing with it together and playing through those mistakes, bonding as a team throughout the course of the year. With that theme in mind, how difficult was last offseason for you, for your roster, considering, you know, you guys aren't able to get onto the court in the spring until really February. You're not able to play a dual match till March. How frustrating was that for everyone? It was just challenging. I think we all uh, in every walk of life have had challenges and continue to experience challenges with COVID. Um, and certainly when it was happening at the beginning, everyone's going through it for the first time and, and, and struggling through it. Uh, I think everyone had challenges. We had some unique challenges ourselves, as you mentioned. Uh, I think College Tennis World really got going in January and our guys weren't back on campus till the middle of February and, and reported into a quarantine. So really didn't get back out on the court until very beginning of March. And, uh, you know, we had some competitive matches in which it was our second or third match of the year playing against teams. It was their 15th or 16th match of the year. And so that was challenging. Proud of the way our group responded uh, after some initial, uh, once we got into conference season and won the regular season outright for the Pac-12 for the uh, first time in many years. Uh, and then had some struggles down the stretch, including some injuries and, and perhaps didn't uh, perform quite as strong as we got into postseason. No, but again, looking at that, the fact that to your point, you guys picked up the baton pretty quickly and it wasn't like it was an easy schedule that you got to roll into, you know, right away. Yeah, you play Santa Clara, St. Mary's, but then UCLA, USC on the road, TCU at home right away. Uh, again, looking back at the schedule, what lead, you know, you keep those matches on the board and you're able to play those results. What did you learn from your team early on? What resilience did you see from them in that first month? Well, I mean, for many of our guys, it was uh, they reported to campus into a quarantine. Some of them, uh, we had a group that had to quarantine a second time. So 20 out of 25-ish days uh, of really not getting activity in. And so uh, while everyone was grateful to be back on campus and, uh, and grateful to have the opportunity to compete, I don't know that we were as sharp as we, as we needed to be. Um, and... Uh, it was an adjustment getting back and playing some some competition for some of our guys. They weren't able to compete at all uh, for a nine-month period going into that. 
Uh, and so those first few matches back, uh, especially as we played some some really good, significant competition, like you said, on the road, uh, was was eye opening for us and um, and, a, and a major adjustment. What did we learn about them? Is about the team. I think all of us learned that you know you face adversity in anything you do, and um, having starting the season so late. I mean, there was people were worried about things that. I mean, our guys, myself included, to a certain extent, worried about things we can't control, which includes like rankings and saw ourselves ranked in outside the top 100 because we hadn't played any matches uh, and trying to uh, not think too much about that, not concern yourself too much about that and focus on the things that you can control. And we had plenty of significant matches upcoming that would give us a chance to get right back into it. And uh, and had a stretch at home in, in conference season in which we won some really close matches, uh, which were really exciting for us as a team and, 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 you know, made for a really good regular season. Obviously, all of the guys on your roster have plenty of talent, and you brought in the number one recruiting class last season, according to TennisRecruiting.net, and it's always going to be difficult to incorporate freshmen into a team and just get them acclimated to college tennis, but a number that stands out to me, and shout out to you, because to do this in three months, I think, is the record amongst coaches we've interviewed. You played 12 doubles pairings last year, and I'm <laughs> curious if that's you searching for continuity, if that's you, you know, I, I'm sure some of it's injury-related as well, but what leads to a number getting you know i would say that's on the higher side 12 pairings yeah i don't think that was intentional uh going in i think with especially with doubles you want to try to establish some continuity uh i think it was a function of uh injuries uh, i think it was a function of the depth of our team and wanting to give especially early part of the season we have unfortunately you get to play six singles every match and we've got 10 to 12 guys who are deserving of playing every match uh, and so a function of uh, giving different opportunities to guys in a competitive environment, especially coming off a year in COVID in which not everybody had the opportunity to compete. And so I think that's where um, that's where it comes from. But as we got towards the end of the season, we got uh, a little bit more established. Mm-hmm. And we I'll- talked about it at the beginning of the year of uh, not just in doubles, but giving guys different opportunities towards the beginning of the year, but, but really trying to um, lock in a little bit more as we got through towards the end of the season no absolutely and you look at the records obviously arthur alex clicked and they've carried that success here into the fall and uh-huh. you know i do want to geek out a little bit though with you because obviously you have seen the way college tennis professional tennis has changed over the years when you're coaching doubles nowadays do you emphasize serve and volley the way it was perhaps emphasized to you back in your playing days i do think there has been a de-emphasis of that tactic over the past few years no doubt. And I, you know, I, th- I think it's case by case. And sure. I, I, I preferred serving volume myself in doubles. Uh, and I think we definitely expose our guys and, and ask our guys to do that, uh, particularly in practice and get more comfortable with it. Uh, but it's not something we mandate. And, um, and we've had guys be successful doing both. Uh, but I would say that as they trans, as our, as, in my experience, as they transition from college, uh, from junior tennis, in which they're, I would say, not as much serving volley in doubles to college tennis, they're certainly doing it more, uh, but not exclusively. 
Would you emphasize it more if it wasn't no ad scoring? I feel like the, the reason I ask is the Devils point such a rat race, right? It's Russian roulette. It's 40 minutes, so much energy. You never really know exactly what's going to happen. Is that part of a byproduct? You know, the, the emphasis is like, look, we just every point is that much more valuable. We need to win points. We can't afford to throw any away. Uh, I definitely think that the no ad scoring has, has put a premium on every point. And, and then as you think about doubles, uh, it's not just no ad scoring, but it's just a six game pro set and it's a total sprint. Um, the bang bang men aspect of, of serving volley, uh, I think lends itself to making you feel like in that type of format of no ad scoring and six game pro set of just trying to steal points, bang, bang, uh, is, uh, you know, I think is potentially a competitive advantage to have that strategy. Uh, but you really, ultimately, you got to put guys in a position where they can be successful. And if they feel like they're more comfortable serving and staying back, uh, then we're not going to necessarily force them to do it. Um, I think it's a little bit more whether or not you serve and volley a little bit more tactically of what you're trying to what, what play you're trying to run to, to put yourself in a position uh, on a first ball, be it the net man uh, getting that first ball or if you are staying back, getting a ball that you want to strike. Uh, that you're most comfortable striking. I think that's more of our emphasis than uh, forcing the certain volley. Has no ad scoring grown on you? Are you, fi- you know, obviously there's a big hoopla in the moment switching from ad to no ad, but, you know, talking to a lot of coaches, it seems as though they enjoyed the sudden death aspect. I think it makes for really entertaining play. Yeah. Uh, and I, I appreciate the fact that it puts sort of a premium on every match, excuse me, on every point, and it puts value on every point. Um, that said, I think it adds to an already, I mean, one of the great things we love about college tennis is how competitive and intense it is. Uh, and we get that significantly even without no ad scoring. I think the no ad scoring adds to that even even more. Mm-hmm. Does it compromise development? Uh, I don't think that it necessarily compromises development. Again, my 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 feeling is that it just adds to an already highly intense competitive environment. Mm-hmm. No, and certainly to your point, it makes for very entertaining tennis. And, you know, with that in mind, I want, I want to talk about your guys. And again, the performance from last season, you look overall 11 and six, you guys make that second round of the NCAA play a fantastic match against Virginia. And, you know, watching throughout the course of the year, what was so amazing getting back to those freshmen was to see just the way that Arthur Ferry clicked in his first season he goes 13 and 3 in singles and again he and Alex 10 and 1 in doubles what you know to use that word again clicked so well for him in his freshman season well one of the things about Arthur he's, he's a joy to work with and um one of the things I, I think that st- stands out for me about Arthur is his poise and composure uh in in some of the most pressure-filled situations uh, and his ability to rise to an occasion um he just, I mean, that it's what he thri- thrives on. And uh, there are players out there who, in those environments, in that pressure-filled environment, um, you know, struggle with that pressure. And it's something that Arthur just uh, embraces and thrives on. And that said, he's got some classmates in Tristan Boyer and Arian Chowdhury and Alex Lee who's demonstrated the same. And Tristan, in particular, with a lot of experience last year and had a 
an excellent summer this past summer and, and, and an outstanding result this fall as well. Uh, and so that class has, has been strong for us and very hopeful and optimistic and confident about their uh, the class's ability to perform this coming year as well. Watching Arthur play, it does feel like athletically there's nothing on a tennis court he can't do. And uh, just the older he gets, the more he you know figures out what's plan A, what's plan B. I could not agree more. It feels like a big season's ahead of him. You mentioned Tristan. And I know, I, I warned you beforehand, if you're going to swear at me on this podcast, this might be the question that you do it. Uh, but obviously for Tristan, the, the way the season ended for him at Virginia, you know, he has that match in his hands and it slips away from him. But you mentioned it. He has an incredible summer, incredible fall. It, it, it's not as simple as, you know, causation, correlation here. But uh, for him, what is a, a, you know, to end that season on that note, that's got to light a fire in that belly, right? And I feel like when you're when you're looking at this Stanford team, a big season from TB feels very much in the cards. We're hoping on it. We're banking on it. He's had, <laughs> as I mentioned, his, his summer was, was outstanding. Some tremendous results. Uh, went on, I think, a 12-match winning streak and heading into the fall. Um, and one outstanding result this fall as well uh, at a tournament outside of college tennis. And you talked about the match last year. He was up 5-1 in the third in our in, in the last match and, and didn't quite get it done. Uh, I think he learned a lot from that. One of the things that I, I really uh, admire about Tristan is his ability to uh, sort of maintain the proper perspective and, and sort of move on. Uh, and that was a disappointment for him. But there is nobody in college tennis who works as hard as, as Tristan and who cares as much as he does and uh, and wants it as badly as he does. And uh, I think he can uh, learn from that experience. And clearly he did and, and, and had outstanding results in the months following that. And, you know, that was, you know, unfortunate, but uh, we, we haven't thought about that that match and, and sometimes since you brought it up frankly uh and we're excited about what Tristan's going to be doing for us this year yeah now really excited to see him play and you know obviously what the last year's freshmen this year's sophomores uh were able to do super impressive and uh that said you know you look at some of your returners you brought back last season there's no ifs ands or buts about it for Axel for Alex it was not the year the standard that they hold themselves to you know what have you seen from them this offseason obviously getting Axel back for that additional fifth year uh you know what does that do for the roster you know what can we expect the bounce back well both those guys are in as good of a space sort of mentally as, as they've been in in four years so I'm, I'm super pleased about that and super excited just to be with both of them during the course of this year their fourth and fifth years respectively and have just seen so much maturity and growth from them from a personal development standpoint from both those guys and just enjoy uh, have enjoyed them for four or five years respectively, but even more so this year, just having them around. Uh, Alex is as motivated as I've seen him. Uh, and so very excited about uh, him. And, and Axel has been sort of bouncing back from an injury over the course of the summer uh, and is getting himself in a place where uh, now, where he's starting to, to sort of be back for playing points. And uh, and he's he's as excited as, as I've seen him in some time about about tennis and finishing his, his Stanford career strong. So, look, it's a, it's a strong team. It's a strong team. If we, we, we need to stay healthy, as everybody in the country does. Uh, but if we do that, uh, we've also got a really a good culture right now. I feel excellent about sort of the culture that the team has, has created over the course of the fall. And uh, I think there's an appreciation for being back on a campus with 
uh, all students back and not just sort of athletes as Stanford was in the in the spring. Um, and so they're enjoying one another. They're they're putting in the good good work, and everyone's just excited to, to get back to what we hoped will be a, a normal season starting in January. Yeah, and for whatever it's worth, and again, it's one set of eyes. Alex looked fit at the fall Nats. Like he just he did look rejuvenated. It felt like there was an extra spring in his step. And I got to see him and Axel play at the 2020 indoors. And you know, those two at that tournament were completely. That was not the Axel and the Alex that we saw last season. And so, right. yeah, absolutely looking forward to the bounce back. But you talk about that depth, and you know, again, not to. I feel like I keep referencing your age. You're not that old. Let's be clear here. Um, but I feel like the biggest difference between college tennis today and college tennis 1990s, early 2000s, it's not the talent at the top because I think the best teams have always been very, very good. But it's that, you know, team ranked number 10, team ranked number 20, 30, 40. They are significantly better than their counterparts were decades ago. I'm curious if you feel that way. And again, how valuable is that depth you just referenced on your roster this season? We were talking about it on our show. Eight guys, nine guys, like throw them in the lineup. It's a you know, it's a dartboard. You throw the dart wherever it lands. All right, you're playing five. Yeah, so I generally agree with what you're saying in terms of uh, the evolution of college tennis over the last twenty some years, and that even even more thirty years. You talk about. 10, 20, 30, I mean, mid-majors, 50, there's quality play uh, at so many different spots in the lineup at so many different conferences at so many different um, uh, places in the country. So the quality of depth in collegiate tennis, I think the quality of depth in junior tennis, uh, I think has increased and that's a big, uh, a big change. I, and I also agree that there's not as maybe as much of a gap in the distinctive talent at the top, uh, but significant more quality of depth. I think that's technology. I think that's uh, training or um, some of the reasons why that is the case. Mm -hmm. uh, so I agree with that assessment. Uh, and it makes for very, very more, more parity, uh, mm -hmm. more, uh, more challenging at every match you play, right? Uh, what are the advantages of having depth? It is, it's also a more physical game than it was 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I didn't spend much time in the athletic training room when I was playing. Uh, and that's again, when having to do with technology, I think the string and the, you know, the prevalence now of the poly string just makes it for a much more physical game, which is harder on the body. Uh, and so the importance of having quality depth in, in the event of injury, uh, I think the importance of that, the other thing that's great about having quality depth is, when you're practicing every day, you're put in an ideal world. The team is pushing one another to get better, uh, and and that is that's what it's all about. And I, I mean, the analogy I've used is some of the most successful sort of American tennis players uh, we've had any country for that matter uh, have occurred when peers, uh, people who grew up with one another, pushed each other to get better. Right, Courier, Mackin, or not maybe not Mackin, the same age. Courier, Chang, uh, Agassi. Those guys grew up playing each other in the juniors. Chang goes and wins the French in '89. Courier's like, I've been playing that guy, you know, for years. I can, if he can do it, I can do it. And then he goes and wins the French Open. Pete wins the U.S. Open. Those guys can do it. I can do it. And so you're pushing one another to get better, and that's on a broader scale and in a in a smaller, more acute scale. That should happen in an ideal world in a college tennis environment on a team. Uh, so that, I think that 
is when you see the most amount of success. I think that is when you see the best growth and development. So have you seen that energy from your team this fall? And how great, exciting has it been for the guys just to be able to have a normal fall again? Yeah, we have seen that this fall. We have a couple guys who are sort of bouncing back from injury and haven't been and have been progressing and haven't been, had a full go. Uh, but other than that, yeah, we have. Um, Arthur had some great collegiate uh, results. Tristan had an outstanding result outside of uh, outside of college. Max Basing came in quality and made quarters of a of a twenty five. Um, Arian Chowdhury wins our regional and has a, a good result in the super regional. So I, I do think that, you know, positive results are building and feeding off of one another. Mm-hmm. No, that's super exciting to hear. And, you know, I'm curious what you view the role of the fall as for your team, because and I suppose this gets into some broader questions. You talk to a lot of SEC men's coaches. They <sighs> rave about the hidden dual matches they were able to play last fall and just the opportunity to put their guys in that team environment before the season. It's the closest you get to replicating that dual match before the start of the spring you know, do you like the individual development that goes on in the fall? Would you like to start playing more hidden duels? What's your uh, view on the role of the fall? Yeah, I think the hidden duels have sort of increased in popularity in recent years. We haven't done it as much in the fall, but we're going to, I think, experiment with it at the very beginning of January. And so that'll be our intro into uh, some dual match play. And I like that aspect. It is different playing an individual tournament. This is a dual match. Uh, and it, I have had the experience of having uh, first-year players come in and play their first dual match and just sort of hitting them um, as much as you try to prepare them for it. It's hard to understand until you actually experience it for yourself. And so I, I do like the concept of perhaps starting some dual, uh, hidden duels. I haven't done it. In, we haven't done it in the past. But, again, we're going to experiment with it this January. Um, what do I ex- – in general, I've asked about the role of the fall uh, – in general, I think that it's it's the emphasis has always got to be on getting better, uh, and so certainly that is the primary emphasis in the fall. And there's maybe perhaps a little bit more of an opportunity in the fall to do some physical development, you know, outside of the on-court work you're doing. And so that's certainly an emphasis. I feel as good about our off-court strength and conditioning program this fall as I have in my, in my tenure. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, Once you get into the dual match season, it's a little bit more challenging relative to the fall to get quite as much growth uh, in that area. But in general, it's about getting better. All the other stuff, the results, it'll take care of itself. But if you just keep your focus on learning, getting better and learning from experiences, I think good things will happen. Would you be fine with moving the NCAA individual tournament to the fall? Uh Uh-huh. Would I be fine with it? I, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting debate. I do think that the, our current format, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's appropriate to sort of look at it, how to improve it. Um, you know, I, I have some concerns about uh, moving it into the fall uh, just because there are so few bites at the apple in order to qualify for that uh, championships. Uh, and so I would say I am, uh, I am still uh, sort of, TBD and, and, and still needs to be looked at from my perspective. It's fair. Well, I've got some points, I suppose, to throw your way. And you referenced this earlier, you know, the concerns with the rankings. And obviously, ranking issues were magnified last season. Big Ten wasn't allowed to play outside of conference. We didn't have a full set of fall results to help, you know, set the rankings individually as well. 
to me, and I'm going to editorialize here a little bit. I hope that's all right. But the idea of the NCAA individual tournament being played the second week of the U.S. Open, that should be the dream. Like, that should be the aspiration, figuring out how to make that a possibility because it would be the ultimate platform for college tennis. And I think one of the ways you go about doing that is just creating a 12-month rolling ranking system. As soon as seniors graduate, that's when you pull them out of the ranking. And I know— Playing a fall NCAA tournament, would any athletic department sponsor a senior to come back and play one tournament that next fall after they graduate? Probably not. But I do think a rolling ranking system, I, I just don't know why we reset at the end of each season. Like, do you put any value in these December rankings? Like, not really. So that's a really interesting concept. I hadn't heard that for college tennis before. I appreciate you raising that. And there are things aspects of that that i i totally agree with and make a ton of sense and it um it it, it it's consistent with the nature of tennis being a 12-month sport 365 sport it's consistent with yeah, i think what i understand from that maybe not but you know you get results that aren't necessarily ita yeah. sanctioned tournaments that part that contribute to your 12-month rolling ranking and i think that would be very appropriate um Obviously, there are some in-the-weeds things you'd have to look at in terms of uh, the number of competition and practice days you can get for college tennis. So I don't know how that would fit into it. But conceptually, a 12-month ranking rolling system that uh, that takes into account all results, no matter where played, is something I would like us to get towards, yes. Yeah, and I know I'm throwing at these these at you impromptu, and I'm sure you would have liked some preparation, but you, you mentioned it there, incorporating professional results. Because I think the two schools of thought are, A, do we want the rankings to be an accurate reflection of who the best players are in college tennis? To do yeah. that, why not factor in UTR? Why not factor in pro results? On the flip side, are the rankings supposed to be a reflection of the best college players in college? Why do we care what they're doing at a 25K? That's not a college tennis result. Where would you be on those two schools of thought? Uh, suppose it's I tough. Yeah, no, it's tough. I suppose I'd, I'd lean slightly more towards the the reality of like the the best players who are playing. Yeah. All results being factored into the the, the ranking, I think. So the the former of the two that you said. Yeah, no, I, I it would make it would be the most accurate to me, and it I just think most, I think I lean more towards trying to find a, a system that is the most accurate if possible. I would agree with you there. You also mentioned, you know, again, some of the developmental pieces and the time it takes to develop these athletes. I know it's an NCAA edict, and it's probably going to have to be player-driven for there to ever be a change. But are the eight-hour rule, the 25 competitive dates, is that enough? Is that reflective of the modern demands of professional tennis, of this level of college tennis? How frequently are you put in a position to coach will come, uh, a player will come up to you and say, Coach, can you work on my forehand today? And you're like, sorry, you've hit your four. Yeah, I mean, it happens. It certainly happens. Uh, but at the same time, it'd be nice on occasion to have a, a little bit more. Certainly there are pockets of the year where, you're, uh, where it'd be even more so. But the 20-hour week within the um, – within sort of your championship segment season, I do think it's sufficient. And one of the reasons I think it's sufficient is uh, one of the things I think, one of the responsibilities I think we have as coaches, as educators is, especially with young men at this, and I say young men because I'm working with the men's team, but I think it's 
the same is true on the women's side as well, is uh, supporting them in their growth towards independence. Uh, and 20 hours a week in the gym on the court, it doesn't mean they can't play a little bit more on their own and with their teammates. Uh, and so, and they don't need, players don't need a coach watching every single ball that they strike. And I think some of the growth and the important growth comes from self-discovery. Uh, and I want my players having a sense of independence and if they have aspirations to be professional tennis players, at least in our current, uh, system on the men's side, once they get out there, they don't get coaching while they're, while they're competing. And so I think self-discovery and self-awareness is really important. And that, that can come with, with time above the 20 that you get, uh, and it can be done on, on, on your own. Yeah, no, I love that perspective. I would add, you would think in the modern era, because I'm sure you didn't know your compliance officer as well as your players know their compliance officer. You would think now they could look at the compliance officer and say, hey, like, this is me driven. I'll fill out whatever form you need. Like, I'm just asking for an extra 30 minutes. That to me is the frustrating part. Also, yeah, I, yeah. yeah no, and the idea that there's a dead period, the three weeks before the dual match season starts, like, that is not helpful for anyone. Those are like the two little things that frustrate me. Yeah, no, I, I share that for sure. Mm -hmm. And so you would think, again, these are little adjustments I suppose we could make. But uh, with all of that in mind, just some final ones for you down the home stretch. Uh, you look at your schedule here this season, and uh, you mentioned some hidden duels you guys might be exploring. I know you've got Pepperdine on the schedule. You've got the kickoff weekend where you're traveling down to UCF, and that's you know UCF, Louisville, Tulane, yourselves. You've got the non-conference USC-UCLA matches. Talk to me about the schedule. What goes into you know booking it as it is? Yeah, no, I mean, again, we're just, I think first and foremost, we're just excited to, and keeping our fingers crossed. And uh, I'm, you know, I think we're all a little bit concerned about some of the um, COVID news that we're seeing lately, but keeping our fingers crossed. But starting on January 12th with U.S. University of San Francisco, our first dual match in, uh, in, in some time, uh, I think most importantly, we're just excited about the possibility of getting back to competing again uh, in a somewhat normal environment but then we get right into it man our, our duel our hidden duel will be against really quality competition pepperdine is an outstanding team the next week we head to orlando on the road uh with three quality teams there come right back to play SCUCLA. so we get after it right away um and I, again I, I think our guy it was quality results on the court in the fall we've had a couple of guys who are sort of been progressing back through injury and just can't wait to get back out on the court again so uh, i am super fired up about uh, getting back into the season yeah no it's it's gonna be a really exciting year and more than anything this just feels like the mulligan that you guys are getting like after last season we felt like we were robbed of the full stanford experience so very excited to get to watch uh your guys compete here throughout the course of the year now with all that said just want to throw uh some final things at you and you know we've had the chance to talk to all of these power five coaches and i think one of the big topics all of you coaches are confronting right now is the recruiting side and i'm curious for you this year obviously you bring in max you bring in Anders, but I'm curious how you balance the idea of, you know, recruiting for, and Stanford's a little bit different, obviously, given the academic standards, but how you balance recruiting four-year players with knowing that right now, if you turn to the transfer portal, you can probably find a five singles player. You can probably find a six singles player. How do you balance those two things in shaping your roster? 
Uh, yeah, well, we haven't uh, had much of any, hardly any experience with uh, with transfers. No undergraduate transfers in our in our program's history to date. It's not to say it can or won't happen, but just haven't had that to date. And so we we our our model has been to bring in the four year player and to help and help them develop through the course of their time. Uh, and you know, if we have guys who feel like they're ready to make an impact at the professional after level after a year, two years, three years. We're going to be supportive of that. We want a program. Uh, we want to run a program where uh, we're bringing in uh, young men who have aspirations to continue their tennis beyond uh, Stanford, whether that's after they graduate or uh, after a couple of years. Uh, that's our goal. It's the experience that I had, experience that Coach Coop had in playing professionally for 13 years after graduating from San Jose State. Uh, and that said, it might not for the 12 guys on our roster, it might not be the um, the case for all 12. Uh, but for those who aren't continuing their tennis career after they graduate, they're they're have the exposure uh, to a, just an incredible, incredible place here at Stanford and have lots of options outside of the sport uh, and are finding themselves in, in really, really great positions. Mm-hmm. I think you just gave it to me, but the other thing I want to offer all of you coaches the chance to do is to give me the pitch. Why should I come out to Palo Alto? Why should I be a Cardinal? Well, we, we talk a lot about it being a decision that just doesn't impact the next four years of your life, but the next 40 or 50 years of your life. And, and we want guys coming in and, and making an impact professionally after they're done. But let's say they have a 12-year professional tennis career, which is a pretty good pretty good run. They're 34, 35 years old uh, when their competitive tennis is done. Uh, and I don't think there's a place, uh, a better place in the world to help prepare you for the next 30, 40 years of your professional life, be it in or out of the sport, than this one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, again, I think Stanford is one of those schools that probably sells itself. And obviously, congratulations, you guys bringing in Nishesh Basfaredi, uh, Samir Banerjee. That's a heck of a class coming in uh, here this next season. Um, all right. With all of that said, let's get funky here down the home stretch. I've got some format questions for you. Curious, obviously, you've seen the format change throughout the course of the years in college tennis. I know we've settled on the no ad scoring. One thing I'm concerned about, and you you talked about it earlier, the excitement and engaging fans. The one thing that always worries me is that lull after doubles because the doubles point is so exciting. It's a 40-minute rat race. It's Russian roulette. There's all this adrenaline going. And then the first sets start. And, like, yeah, the hardcore fans, we love seeing those first 20 minutes. But to a casual fan, one coach framed it to me as you're giving them an excuse to leave. Mm. Is that something that concerns you about the college tennis product moving forward? Do you feel that lull? Uh, yeah, I think everyone feels that low because, you, like you said, it's a sprint in, in doubles um, before and, and, you know, in that five minute break in between, we talked to our guys about uh, making the, the mental shift from the sprint of doubles to a little bit more of the marathon and singles. Um, I don't know that I'd change it, though. I don't know that I'd change it. What? What's the alternative? Fast four sets of singles? Oh, simultaneous start. Here we go. Now we're talking ah, about bread and butter. So you go yeah, so one doubles, doubles. Yeah, one doubles, four singles flights. Everything's worth one. That way you get it all going. I, I've had other people suggest just start singles matches as soon as they're done with doubles, if possible. But to me, I just think simultaneous start. It's probably all done within two and a half, three hours. I, I'm afraid that might be the future. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, it's possible. I think if you go there, then I'd like to go back to some sort of like a, a deuce plus two type thing where yeah. you get into, 
you get a, you get to a deuce, but then you, if you get to the third deuce, then maybe it's no ad, but given a, a little bit more uh, play that way if you get into simultaneous. Yeah. No. What about substitutions? Would you be in favor? How many times have you set a lineup and been like, I wish I could pull that guy? Like, I, that was a bad call by me. Would you be in favor of substitutions? In the middle of a match? No. Oh, you, you don't like it? No. <laughs> It's good. Imagine the focus, the intensity players would have to bring if they know, hey, if I drop, if I have a bad 15 minutes, I'm getting the yank. Yeah. Uh, a little too gimmicky. I thought, I've thought about the, the playing simultaneous before. I haven't thought about the substitution as much here. Yeah, you didn't prepare me for, for any of that. Yeah. <laughs> they do it a little bit in team tennis, right? They do. We They play it in, yeah, the I'm world just, team tennis where you can sub one in, one out. So everyone can only play twice. So it'd be like, you know, you only get the one sub. And it's a soccer situation. Once you're subbed out, you're out. So right. it's not like you can get, you know, fairy going from two to five to four. Like, none of that. But a one sub system, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. These these are, again, I have too much time. I know. I need a girlfriend. Too much time on my hand. Very, very clear. Um, all right. With that Love said, would yeah, would you take a timeout if you got? I know we have changeovers, me, you know, medical timeouts, all these different things. But one ninety-second timeout, you can bring all the guys in. I like your substitution better than your timeout. <laughs> but, but 20, uh, I think there's enough downtime. We don't need to add more. All right, I like that. Um, the The last one I would have for you is: I think the coin toss is a waste. We can do way better. One point, drop and hit. Head coach versus head coach. Winner decides the serving arrangements. I'm in. I'm yeah. in. Love it. <laughs> I would also do rock, paper, scissors just because I want the team meeting where you're like, paper's the 42% play. Like, we're throwing I, paper. I'd go rock, paper, scissors over uh, coin toss also. Both of those are uh, better than the coin toss. I'm with you. I want to see all of you coaches chipping and charging. Like that, because none of you are hitting passes. Let's go. Uh, hit the saber, right? <laughs> yeah. Get one point. Ex exactly. Um, would you like to see the NCAA champ get a wild card regardless of nationality? I think I would, yes. It's better for the growth of the game, right? Just to embrace you are the college representative? Yep. Mm -hmm. I would. No. I love to hear all of those things. Well, then, last last ones for you. I was talking to Coach Jackson yesterday. He says his Mississippi State team should have beaten you guys in 98. Yes or no? I think we should have beaten us. Uh, no, well, <laughs> I, I what I remember about that, doubles was tight. I thought we had a few guys get off the court quickly to win 4-0, but the matches that were still on the court were pretty tight. And so while the final score line there was 4-0, uh, I do think there were some really competitive matches still going on. Uh, he said it was the doubles point, that that one slipped away, changed that they had the doubles point and that they could have tested you had they taken it. Yeah, that would've, it would have been it would have been certainly competitive, more competitive if they had gotten the doubles for sure. And yeah. I do remember the doubles point being pretty tight. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know about should have. It, it was definitely more competitive than the the, the score line of 4-0. I, I definitely remember that. Yeah, I like that. Well, the last one for you, because I always like to sneak these in. Give me an Alex Kim at six singles story. Like, I just feel like we don't talk enough about that season, about a four, uh, top 100 player just sitting at six. Uh, gosh, he didn't even play doubles that year either. Charles Hover <laughs> played dubs. He came in and played singles. I think he went – no, he didn't go undefeated. We lost two singles matches that whole year. So our our team over the course of the season outscored our opponents 173-3 to three over the course <laughs> of that season. There were two doubles matches. Bob Bryan 
losing, excuse me, two singles matches, Bob losing, I think to Steven Baldus mm-hmm. at Georgia. And I'm pretty sure Alex lost at UCLA to Jason cook. And then we <laughs> lost a doubles point at Arizona state on the day that, uh, Stanford basketball, men's basketball was in the final four against Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, but Alex was, I mean, played six, lost only one match, but, uh, one NCAA is, I think, two years later was a one. Did he get to 105? Maybe ATP beat uh, Yevgeny Kafelnikov at the Australian Open. Uh, and I, I, speaking of the Mississippi State match, you'd have to check it, but I want to say my memory serves that it's a competitive doubles point. And Alex, I think, got off the court first in, in singles against Mississippi State. And just we look over, see that we're up 2 0. I think everyone breathes a little bit easier because of that. So, uh, given that you brought up coach Jackson, I think that's the story I'd share is like, I, I do remember that match as dominant as that season was that Mississippi state match in the semis, they were a darn good team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing Alex get off the court, uh, first, uh, at six was, was kind of huge for us. Was he the freshman though, to the team? Like, it, it's funny. Cause I've been joking around with some coaches, give me your program Mount Rushmore and like making the Stanford Mount Rushmore. Good luck. Like, I mean, I, you could make an argument that yeah, Mike and Bob were excellent, but like, do they belong on the Mount Rushmore for, you know, not a four year account sort of post Stanford results as well. Yes. <laughs> Those guys were only here two years. They won national championships both years. Bob was a triple crown winner. So yeah. yes, they're on the Mount Rushmore. Uh, I think John, Johnny Mack, of course, is on the Mount, Mount Rushmore as well. And, Do you uh, sneak yeah. yourself or Alex? It's wow. a good race for that final spot. No, I mean, we got guys who got the four <laughs> in the world. Yeah, I, don't know. I, no, I, I think it's John Mack, Mike and Bob and Coach Gould. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly it. You can be the tour guide. Like if you want, you can yeah. have inside access. Yeah, I can be. <laughs> I love it. Well, Coach Goldstein, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Obviously, we're all looking forward to seeing your team compete. Oh, my last question. It's always a little sappy. I forgot to sneak this in. One takeaway you would like for college tennis fans when they watch your team play this year. One takeaway for college tennis fans. Well, I think, I guess it's gratitude. I mean, we just would be really grateful uh, to be back playing, uh, to get a full season in. And my hope is that you see a group of guys who play with, play with joy and play with gratitude. Mm-hmm. No, I love to hear that. As a fellow Jewish man, are you the only Jewish male named Paul? <laughs> uh, am I only? Maybe. I don't know. So my parents named my little brother Nicholas, but to like clarify, they went just a K, no C H, and they were like, "We are not. They're not going to confuse him for Saint Nicholas." I'm like, "We got Saint Paul Goldstein here. It's kind of it's an oxymoron." Yeah, I noted. (laughs) Yeah, there there you go. That's that's the insight you're looking for here today. That's the perfect place to end, Uh, Coach Goldstein. uh, Happy holidays, obviously, to you and your family. Uh, Happy holidays to you and your team. Hope you guys stay safe, stay healthy, and good luck to you all throughout the course of this season. Thanks, Alex. Happy holidays, my friend. Yeah, of course. Take care. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Stanford men's tennis head coach Paul Goldstein. A huge thank you to Coach, as always, for taking the time to chat. Appreciate his candidness. Appreciate how measured he is with each and every answer. You know when Paul Goldstein says something, he means it, so I appreciate his candidness throughout today's episode. And, of course, if you would like to learn more about the Stanford Cardinal, as I mentioned at the top of our show, head on over to our website, CrackRackets.com. Matt Stokowiak has written about them, of of course, you can find our Great Shot podcast episode where Matt Stokowiak, Chris Helioris, and myself discuss Stanford. We have them as our preseason number seven men's team. Maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. Of course, you can always tell us why you feel that way on social media. You can find us at Crack Rackets on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. You can message me directly at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out. I mentioned this at the top as well. But if you've missed any of our College Contenders episodes, you can catch up on them all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, given you're listening to this on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed, you probably see we are trying to interview each and every Power 5 college tennis head coach before the start of the season. All of those interviews available both on our website and on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. So, of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, share it with your friends. Do the same, by the way, for our mini break and Great Shot podcast feeds as well. But with all of that said, for our fantastic guests, Stanford men's tennis head coach Paul Goldstein, super producer Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 